You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's sermon text comes from Psalm 53. It says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, for there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Welcome inside where there's heat. My name's Casey. I am one of uh, the pastors here at Free City. And if you're with us for the first time, um, we've, we've been meeting outside. We're inside um, right now. And I want to give you a heads up. So November 1st, we are going to be making the move inside uh, for the winter. And uh, we won't actually be meeting here at First Southern, um, which they've been so, they've been such good friends to us. I mean, such good friends to us. Uh, we'll actually be kind of south of town um, at uh, River City Church. The auditorium is just a little bit bigger, um, and we think it'll serve us. And man, they are going to be great friends to us too. Uh, we'll be on Sunday evening just for the foreseeable future until uh, you know schools kind of get a regular routine and kind of figure out what it's going to look like for them to complete their mission before they open up the doors to us. And so you have to be a little bit flexible, um, but uh, weather permitting, we'll be outside next week uh, just to finish out October. Um, if it's cold, we might be back in here. But I mean, it, hey, this is this is Kansas, y'all. It could be 90 degrees next week. And so um, in looking at this psalm, Psalms 53, I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, we have to do something that is difficult for our modern minds to do. So, something difficult for our culture to, like, grab a hold of. We have to, like, see a difference between good and evil, like we have to acknowledge that there is a path that leads to righteousness and there's a path that leads to destruction. And we have to acknowledge that the Bible, when it talks about these things, it sees these things as different. Like we have to acknowledge that God is not of our culture, that God does not like see all things as a shade of gray, or, or God doesn't say like something like this, like my, circumstance, my circumstances or my you know, evil responses or maybe my regrettable responses are reasonable given to the circumstances that I was in. God doesn't do that. Like we have to look at what's before us in Psalms 53 and we have to see what the Bible demands of us. That the Bible says there is evil. That there is evil and there is good and there is a God who this says will save his people. Like there's a God who will save, but he will also judge. 
And even the, the language of it is he'll judge and scatter the bones. I mean, that is like, I'll kill you and then kill you again. I mean, like total judgment. Like we have to acknowledge what is in front of us. This psalm demands that we accept that we are capable of greater evil and greater deception than we know. It it demands that we see a wickedness within. It demands that we see a God who is who he says he is, a God who can save, but a God who also judge. You know, last week, Gary, as he was preaching Psalms 52, um, man, he, he, he he did such a great job. You know, last week it showed Psalms 52. It's written about Saul chasing David to kill him. Like, like just picture that. If I catch you, I will kill you. That is evil. Like, I, I, uh, in the third grade, um, on the playground, there was a girl, her name was Caroline. She had red hair, and she was fast. I mean, like, lightning fast. And uh, she would chase us, and she would yell, if I catch you, I will kiss you. And I felt the terror that she might kill me. Like, I mean, as I got older in middle school, I probably would have tripped. But I mean, I felt the terror of it. Like, if I catch you, I will kill you. Or, or what we saw, like, it was because of envy. He envied David. So out of the envy, the jealousy, I'm jealous of you, so I will kill you. And then the background, you know, in, in 1 Samuel 22 and 23, like Saul in that moment chasing after David, after David had sought refuge in the city of, of, of Nome. I'll see you in just a second. After he sought refuge there, and he didn't tell the priest everything, and Saul catches up, and then he orders the death. He orders the death of Ahimelech the priest. And like we, we see it, it's named in Psalms 52. Doeg the Edomite kills the priest, but he doesn't stop there. Like look at what it says in 1 Samuel 22 in verse 18. And you can just listen to it. It says, and Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest and killed him. And then it says, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both men, women, child, and infants. Evil is real. And let us not forget what this was born out of. This was born out of, I'm jealous of you, David. And it led to murderous consequences. It led to the death of 85 priests. 86 when you count Elimelech. And then in the city, every man, woman, child. And then it goes on, just stop a child. Every man, woman, child, and infant. The Bible gives great recollection that evil is real. Like, it's real. It's in the heart. It's functionally rejecting the rule of God. Every man, woman, child, and infant. Like, do you see evil in this world? But this psalm's going to go one step further. Do you see evil within? Like, is there envious desires, like what we see here, that like the, the fearful moment would be like, I don't know where it would stop. I mean, we tell ourselves, surely it won't go too far, but this seems to go farther than we ever deemed possible. You know, this psalm demands that we see evil for what it is. 
that it's darker than you know and reach further than what you think. This psalm demands that we see the functional rejection of God as far more dangerous than what we think. This psalm asks us to look at the foolishness the steadfastness of our foolish hearts that we might reject the rule of God. Look to the place of God and say, I don't see anything. I don't see anything in his rule. I don't see anything for me. I don't see any accountability that's necessary. Evil within. You know, if you, during the reading of Psalms 53, you thought, man, that sounds familiar. You are correct. This is nearly word for word uh, from Psalms 14, where um, there's a few differences. One of the differences in Psalms 53 is it doesn't use uh, God's proper name, Yahweh, which gets translated as Lord, in some translations, all caps. It uses uh, another name for God, which means Elohim, which is like God Almighty, the mighty God. And so there are just a few differences. And then it gets to verse 5. And verse 5, if you're thumbing between Psalm 14 and 53, it starts off the same. Like it starts off kind of saying the exact same thing. They are in great terror. But then it's very, very different. And so you might ask yourself, like, why is it in there twice? Or you might ask yourself, like, should we preach it again? And like, this is like the question that I've been asking all week. Like, why is it in there twice? And should I preach it again over and over? It's been a really stressful week. Like, you know, it wouldn't have been so stressful if I looked at Psalms 14 and thought, man, I killed that when I preached it. But it was less than desirable. And so back and forth, why is it there? Should I preach it? Finkel and Einhorn, Finkel and Einhorn. Like, I just, you know, what should we do? That's Ace Ventura. You guys weren't alive, but it's a classic. And like we want to ask this question, like maybe it's in there twice because the occasion of its message needs to be heard more than once. Or, or maybe it's there twice because the heart of humanity is consistent and there is a pull in us to be cavalier with sin and then even doubt if God is re- real or if he'll do anything about what I do or how I live or the sin around me. Or what if I need to hear it in the progression that we find from Psalms 51, 52, and 53? You see, Psalms 52, when the knowledge of my sin comes, I could be like David in Psalms 51, and I, I, I could repent and bring him my brokenness and find restoration. Seeing sin within led to repentance. Or you have Psalms 52 where Doeg, the mighty man, saw his sin, didn't care, doubled down. He didn't run away from it. He didn't run for the refuge of God, but he ran for the failing stronghold of his arrogance. Or you could be like Psalms 53 and just refuse to see wrong as wrong and refuse to see God as God and be what's described here as the steadfast fool of Psalms 53. Different responses to seeing observable wickedness. And so we're going to look at this under three headings. So three, three headings. And so the, the first one is like what a fool doesn't want to see. Like there's a steadfastness where he's looking at the evidence, but he doesn't want to see it. And so what a fool doesn't want to see. Number two, what God sees clearly. And so in verses two through four, he describes humanity clearly. And we don't like the way he describes it. And then we're going to end with what must be seen for us to be saved. 
what, what, what a fool doesn't want to see, what God sees clearly, and what must I see so that I might be saved. And so let's start in verse 1. Look, it says this. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. And so like, if we start off like, what a fool doesn't want to see. A, a fool doesn't want to see God or that his sin is real and he might be accountable to it. And like right here, like if you're a mom and you're thinking, man, it is not nice to do name calling. You are right, but you're also wrong because the Bible loves to call us fools a lot. Like hundreds and hundreds of times, the Bible stands and it says, you fool. And it's actually way more specific than that because the, the Old Testament has five different words describing you as a fool, and they have slightly different meanings. And so when it says you fool, it doesn't just mean like you don't have a high IQ. It doesn't just mean that you didn't get a good ACT score. It doesn't just mean that you're not business savvy. You can be all of those things. And the Bible could still call you foolish. You can have incredible test scores. You can be incredibly successful in business. You can have like read all the great literature of the past, be very, very well read, and still find yourself with a foolish heart. You know, the five different words, and just real fast, like, you know, it's going to use a word that describes just a simple fool, someone who's not overly bright. Like, the next idea always feels like the right idea. And, you know, you, you ask someone, why do you do that? They just kind of give you, like, a confused look, because it was next. I mean, that's one type of fool the Bible talks about. There's another one that you can describe as just a silly fool, and it's just someone who is inconvincible. Like they're always so self-assured in their own way of thinking, always speaking first and not listening. Or there's also a sensuous fool, someone who doesn't look beyond the pleasure of the moment. It's not that they're not intelligent, it's that they're unreasonable. Like the response would be like, yeah, I just felt right, so I just did it. I mean, I just got married and her name is, yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I just did it. Or there's the scornful fool, and that, that word it actually comes from a look or a sound that you would make. And so like someone who struggles with all authority, they scorn, and there's a visible rejection of people or ideas that contradict or expose them. Like it's the look of like, ugh. Or this fool, the most dangerous kind of fool, and how the Bible talks about it, it comes from the word Nabal, and it means a steadfast fool. It's the most dangerous, a steadfast fool totally rejects God and his ways. He is self-confident and closed-minded. He has already decided in his heart what he will believe. It doesn't matter the evidence that comes. And there's actually even a drawing. Like, I don't want to just, you do you and I do me. I want you to be with me and we reject everything together. And this is the fool of Psalms 53, the steadfast fool who says, there is no God. And so look, like really, if we're going to describe this, it says, the fool, so the Nabal, the steadfast fool, says in his heart there is no God. Like, look, he's actually trying to convince himself or herself God is not real. It doesn't say this fool believes in their heart. It says he says in his heart. There is like a preaching to the self. It doesn't matter what I do. There's not going to be consequences. I'll get away from it. It doesn't matter because there is no God. 
You know, second, like something to point out, like where it says there is no God, like that word right there in this context, it means nothingness. Like nothingness. Like when he looks to the place of a God or accountability, he sees nothing. There's a mantra to believe and to reinforce with selective evidence. I will be accountable to no one because in the place of God, there is nothing. Or it goes on, the steadfast fool deals dishonestly with the evidence. Look at verse 1, it goes on, it says, They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Like the corruption means actually dishonest. The abominable actually means like morally repulsive. But it means they are dishonest with the evidence at hand and it leads to moral iniquity. It leads to moral li- immoral lifestyle. And so if I'm not honest with what I'm doing or with what I see, it'll lead to devastating places. And then we see that word again, the, the nothing. And it turns, and the author uses the nothing again, but this time it's not applied to the steadfast, how the steadfast fool sees the place of God, but how the goodness of life is not found in them at all. Like there it is again, it'll be again in verse three. And so like when we see this, the life of the steadfast fool is examined for goodness. There's nothingness, there's nothing there. And I think there's a connection, like if you find nothing when you look to the place of God, when it comes to the fullness of goodness in your life, there's going to be very much the same. A vast nothingness. And then I think this is really important. Like, just looking at this, the context of Psalms 53, like, they're not actually, like, you could look at this and be like, oh man, an atheist. They didn't really exist in the context of Psalms 53. Like everyone believed in a God. So this isn't talking about a belief system of like atheism. This is talking about a functional atheism, a life that shows there's no accountability. I don't believe in God. Like this is far more common than what we want to believe. This would have been talking about someone who would have known the prayers, who would have gone to the synagogue, someone who would have identified as someone who followed after God, and yet they came to the place and they said, when it comes to actual life, God has nothing to do with my life. There's no accountability. I'm just going to do what I want to do. A functional atheism. It's believing that all your choices find no divine accountability or all your struggles are up to only you or the measures of your wisdom, power, connections, or your witty personality are the only real determinants in your life. There is a persisting fool that refuses to see or acknowledge God. And day in and day out, the functional belief is there is no God. And so if you're you're with us and you're like, man, I've never been here. Gosh, man, he is calling a lot of people fools. I'm not doing it. The Bible's doing it. If you're looking at this and you're like, man, I'm still trying to look at the idea of Christianity. I'm trying to kind of kick the tires on it. Like, I would just ask this, like, can you doubt some of your doubts as much as you doubt the evidence that you see? Like, when you look to the the revelation of the scriptures or when you look to a historical narrative that we see this, can you ask yourself, why are we still talking about an uneducated carpenter who died upon a Roman cross? Like, why are we still talking about someone who was crucified? When the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people, can you name one other person who was crucified? 
Why are we talking about him? Like, would you look into that and weigh the evidence? And so the first thing is we looked at this idea of what a fool doesn't want to see. A fool doesn't want to see that God reigns and what I do could be counted as wicked to him. The second thing, what God clearly sees, evil as common daily activity. Look look at verse 2. It says this, God looks down from heaven. Now, this doesn't actually mean that God has to be looking down. God is omnipresent, and so he's everywhere. That's a big fancy word, omnipresent. He's everywhere. But like it talks about like his supremeness. Like He is up and he is looking down. There is nothing that escapes his vision. God is in heaven looking down. Nothing escapes him. No motives, no situation, no actions escape. He sees perfectly. He weighs perfectly. God looks down. And then look at verse 2. It says, on the children of man. And it goes on to see, to see if any there who understand, who seek after God, and it says, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none, we see that nothing word again. There is none who does good, not even one. Like right there where it says the children of man, it literally means, it literally says Adam. So the children of Adam. And so when you talk about like mankind or you talk about the specific Adam who was married to Eve, the only way you know the difference is the context in which it uses. And so right here, it's definitely, they, they translated it right for sure. You know, the idea of all of humanity, God sees all of humanity, all descending from Adam. And then it talks about the brokenness, all fallen away, all become corrupt. And so it's putting these categories in that the New Testament says are very important. See, the New Testament says there's really two categories of mankind. Either you fall in line with Adam, who sinned in some pretty specific ways, and we'll look at that in just a second, or you fall in line with Jesus, who overcame all the temptations for us. And that category is very important for how you stand with God. Not your moral work, but where you stand before God. And so when it says, on the children of Adam, it's asking us to say, where do I now stand? And so like in Romans 5, like we see these categories picked up, and this is important for the, how salvation unfolds. So Romans 5, it says this in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one Adam, one man, and their death and, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin. Like that's our predicament, that's our inherited legacy. It says, like Adam. And so, like Adam, man, we, we don't trust God. God God puts some some things about the world for us to follow, and we look at him like, man, I don't know. You know like Adam, like when we're caught, we blame. You know, you remember Adam, like he was caught and he's like, man, it wasn't my fault. It's the woman you gave me. Like she messed everything up. And so we start to blame. We don't just take it like we have in Psalms 51. All I have is brokenness to bring to you. Like we start to point fingers. You don't know what my parents were like. You, you don't know the kind of school I went to. You don't know. We start to throw things out there. We start to blame other things. So we don't trust God. We start to blame. And then we start to hide as soon as caught up in sin and shame starts to sin, they start to put clothes together with leaves, which you can imagine is not really good for clothing. Which might actually be a picture of the things we try to hide our shame behind. 
Like how many times do you have to see like someone super successful in worldly standards, but when they're actually interviewed, they're still talking about like their deep daddy hurts. We think this fortress of success or this mountain of money is going to hide it, but it's like leaves that just fall apart when we start to inspect it. Like just like Adam, we lack trust, we blame, we hide. And then look at verse 4. It says, Have those who work evil no knowledge. And so it positioned us in this like redemptive category. It says, do you not even see what's going on? And then look at this. And this is really the scary phrase where it says, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. Like that's a startling thing. Like eating bread is a common daily activity unless you're gluten, you know, you know what, intolerant, whatever that is. None of the people back then were, Okay. Like, you might have rice bread, and that's, that's evil and demonic and disrespectful to all the cans of farmers. But, like, right here, like, common. Rich people would have eaten bread daily. Poor people would have eaten dead braily. Braily. Daily. And what this is saying is, like, they don't have any knowledge, and they devour people like they eat bread. A common daily activity. Just as you're hungry, you would reach for bread. Just when you feel insecure, you would reach to crush someone or to use someone or to step on someone. The only way you can have an idea of inclusion is if you feel someone is beneath you. The only way that you can have an idea of an identity is if you're judging it on someone's failure. Like I say, it's common. It's all around. Us devouring one another with the same regard as we would eat a sandwich. And then look at what it says at the end of verse, or verse 5. There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. Now, I think what that means is like a holy God puts all of us to flight. It puts us all to run, like we don't measure up. But I think what that means is when we're constantly, commonly measuring up against one another, and we see a flakiness inside of us that we will crush someone to benefit us, like what starts to happen is like, why should I ever trust anyone? When I was doing student ministry, I had one of my students, he came to my office, and he, uh, we were just talking, and he just said, man, I just don't feel like I can trust anybody. And I just kind of like, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you can't trust anybody? He's like, I lie to people all the time. Why should I trust anyone to tell me the truth? Like, that was actually really insightful. I think that's actually what this is saying. Like, if, if there's a commonness in me, a daily hunger in me to crush people around me, like, I should always be afraid that someone around the next corner is going to crush me. It says there is an evilness that is common in the heart of mankind if we are found in the line of Adam. And like, you might right now be like, no, 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 man, I'm, a, I'm good. Like, I would never do that. Perhaps the circumstances just haven't aligned themselves to see what's really in your heart. You know, over and over, like through um, COVID stuff, like we've met with marriages and we've met with people who, you know, sinful habits of the past have really grabbed a hold of them again. Or, or some of the marriages that we've met with, like, man, we used to get along a lot, but now we see each other. And I'm like, well, okay. 
You know, it, it's not that, that, that this situation, this moment is causing that. It's that the weight of this moment is exposing what's there. And if you have a gospel lens and you would say, man, praise God it's exposed. So now I can be like a Psalms 51. I'd be like David and I can offer that brokenness to God and say, I need help. Or I can be like Doeg the Edomite and I can just go to my strengths and I can just devour all around. Or I can be like Psalms 53, the steadfast fool, and I can just say, it doesn't matter. There is no God. It doesn't matter. Do what you want. See, this is what's unfolding. Like, like I think there's a lot of ways that we, we actually fall into an idea of a functional atheist. Like we actually fall into that. Like what we do is we look to the throne place of God and we actually say, he has nothing for me there. But like we look to the throne room of God and we say, God actually doesn't have anything for my anxiety. He doesn't get it. Or God doesn't actually understand these things that are triggering me. Like I can't trust him in these situations. God actually has nothing for me when it comes to these type of things that really plague my heart. We think we're left to our own. All we have are the works of our hands. That's the only thing that's determined our future. And then it says this. This is kind of the, the victory phrase of, of God's ultimate victory and judgment verse 5 he says for god scatters the bones of him who encamps against you and puts them to shame like i think it's just a description of like total victory i mean this is like you know we're getting to the place where we can actually kind of leave our kids at the house for a little bit of time and we've totally tricked them to think make them think like walkie talkies are cool we're like keep the walkie talkie and they love them and sometimes it's crazy because they give us way too many updates. Like, hey, we're okay. Just want to let you know. Okay, you don't have to tell us everything. This is like pre-911 call, okay? And so, but like, like we have that kind of communication. But we can actually leave. Like they're, they're growing up. I mean, they're doing long division. What else do they need in life, you know? And so we can actually get, trust them a little bit. And, and there's, they can start to walk things out. But this is like the moment where you leave. Hey, if you let one of your siblings die or if you die yourself, we'll kill you when we get home, okay? Like you just need to know that. This is almost like, man, complete and utter victory. And then it says, for God has rejected them. And th th these are the questions. There's not a lot of good news so far. Like, how do I keep from being in that camp? How do I find myself not being in the rejected category? Like, how do I keep from being put to shame? Like, these are the, the words and the phrases. How do I keep from my bones being scattered in judgment? Like, how do I keep from being that? Or to put it another way, what must I see to be saved? Like, if I'm prone to have the fool in my heart and say, God has nothing for me in this part of my life. Or if I'm prone to look at my sin and say, you know, God must not care because he hasn't stopped it yet. Or he's been silent. If I'm prone for any of these things, if I don't just look without, but I I look within and I see that in my heart. What, what do I need to see? And this actually tells us in verse 6, there's something that we have to see to be saved. And it eludes, it, it really picks up in the New Testament. Like we have to see, like we have to be known and written. Our names have to be known by God and our names have to be written down in his book. Look at verse 6. Look at the proper nouns. 
<laughs> it says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, that Israel be glad. Did you see all the proper nouns that we see all throughout the Old Testament that we need to see? You know, Israel, we, it's listed twice. Zion, Jacob, all of those people are called his people. They are known by God. They are written here in this book. And elsewhere in this book, it places a category of his people. And so what exactly? What exactly does that mean? Jesus in the New Testament talk about this in salvation terms all the time. Like Jesus himself in the New Testament teaches about salvation using this. And it doesn't placate us. It doesn't give us empty sentiment. Like I'm sure you're not all that bad. Or like, man, I know you tried really hard. Or I'm sure your heart was in the right place. Like Jesus and the New Testament are honest about what will save you. And it was nothing to do with your moral effort. It has everything to do with a transformation happening where you are now known by God in a certain way. That he knows your name and he has written your name in a book and so just listen to this text in in luke 10 jesus sent out the disciples two by two to preach the good news of the coming kingdom and when he talks about the disciples sometimes he's talking about 144 sometimes he's talking about the 72 sometimes he's talking about the 12 sometimes he's just talking about the three you know peter james and john they got in when the room was small this is talking about the 72 and so he looked at 72 disciples and he sent them out down the countryside two by two. And he said, go tell everyone about the coming kingdom of God. Tell them the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God. And he said, listen, everywhere you go, preach my name. And listen to the report when they came back. It says in, in verse 17 of Luke 10, it says, The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They came back with a lot of victory. They came back and said, Jesus, you should have seen it. Like, you should have seen it. Like, like demons, like when we mentioned your name, they ran. It was incredible. And Jesus actually celebrates that. Listen, in verse 18, he says this. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on the serpent and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He says, I saw it. Like, I, I kind of picture Jesus being like me when I coach. Like, I jump up and down a lot, and I clap a lot, um, and I use, you know, I just yell and kind of spit. I mean, I get excited. I, I picture him saying, like, man, I saw it. It was incredible. But look at what he says in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so Jesus says, you want to know something about salvation? It has something with you, your name being written in heaven. It has something about you being known to God and accessible in a book. It says it has to be written down. It's not a general invitation in a sense that you're just a part of it. You have to be a part of it. And so Jesus says there's something about your name being written down in heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 8, 
this is in First Corinthians eight. We're told that loving God is evidence that you are known by God. It just says this real plain. First Corinthians eight three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, like the steadfast fool of Psalms fifty three is strengthening the idea that God doesn't exist or doesn't care. But the New Testament believer is strengthening the idea that, man, there is love for God in my heart. It needs to grow. And if I love God even just a little bit, if I trust God even just a little bit, if I love God just a little bit, I'm known by God. It doesn't say this, like, man, you have to really love him. To love God is to be known by God. You want to know what salvation is? How are you saved? There's something about your name written in a book. There's something about love in your heart that makes you known by God. And then there's even something more specific, a book on display in heaven in the final judgment. Revelations 20, starting in verse 11. Just listen to this. This is the big throne room, final judgment, all time. Everything has been brought in accounts. And I want you to pay attention to like, there's many books and there's one book. Many books, one book. It says, then I saw a great white throne room and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for him. This is just an awesome picture of the power of God. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books, plural, books were open. Everyone, from people with power like Doag the Edomite in Psalms 52, or the unnamed fool of Psalms 53, everyone is standing in that judgment and they all have books and they represent their lives and they all have everything in their life recorded in those books. Everything that can be seen from the vantage point of God in heaven, which is everything. But there's another book. And praise God, there's another book. See, there's all these books, but there's another book. And this is the book that was celebrated by Jesus in Luke 10. Jump down to verse 15. It says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Psalms 53, verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion to restore the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice that Israel be glad. See, the New Testament, it teaches us that salvation did come out of Zion. See, on the, the mountain, on the top of that hill where Jesus was crucified to cancel the debt of your book, he went to the cross to write your name in his book. And it can only be written with his blood. When you see that, you stop reinforcing the idea that God isn't there or doesn't care in your heart. And you start trying to reinforce the idea, if I just have a little bit of love for God, God, would you help me grow that? Because I really believe if that starts to grow, I'll actually have more faith and just more trust. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, we just need help. Lord, I'm so thankful every time you talk about the idea of faith, you tell us we just need a little. And Lord, I'm so thankful that in the Bible there's even the story about the dad who needed his son healed. 
and you turned and you looked at him and you said, all things are possible for those who have faith. And he just said, I do have faith. I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. Lord Jesus, if there's any love for you in us, would you magnify that? Would you grow that? Would it become something that we preach to? Would it become something that grows and gives confidence that we are known by God? Now, with your heads down, eyes closed, I just want to talk to you. Like, you know, when we talk about what it means to come to Jesus, like, what that means is we, what this says is we look to the place of Zion. We look to that hill and we say, what comes out of Zion that can save? And the New Testament screams, from predicting the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, it screams this, the only thing that can save is Jesus crucified and resurrected. You see, what, what this said, when we talked about either in the line of Adam or the line of Jesus, like we have representative, a representative going before us. And will either be found in the foolishness of Adam who looked at God and just kind of blame shifted and didn't trust God and started to hide their shame. Or will be found in the person of Jesus who had perfect faith force, who had fear and doubts because of the humanity of Jesus, but trusted perfectly. And what the Bible says is that faith can be transmitted to you if you look to Jesus and say, that's what I want. And like that, your name is known to God and it's written in his book. That's the beautiful picture of salvation. And that picture actually is what grows faith if we look at that. Man, I did nothing to get in that book and now I have a father who loves me and sees me and will never forsake me. And even though there's a lot of fools still bound up in my heart, he still calls me child. Father, we love you and we need you and Lord, to be renewed and refreshed even when we look at the judgment of God to find out that we can escape the judgment of God because of the work of Jesus upon the cross. 